Brothers and sisters, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading this morning. Uh, We're going to be looking together in the book of 2 Kings. going to be in the Old Testament today, 2 Kings. And in case you are terrified, I am not reading the entirety of two chapters. <laughs> 2 Kings 22 and 23, we are, this is the longest passage I've ever preached. But I'm not, it's not going to be the longest passage I ever read, so don't worry about that. Uh, we're going to read together chapter 22, and I'm going to read verses 8 through 13. And then we will re- refer to other verses as we go along. So let's read together our scripture reading for the sermon today. 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 8 through 13. And this will give us the core of what chapters 22 and 23 are about. And this is God's holy word for us, his people, this morning. God's word says, And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Achbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. This is God's holy word for us, his people today. Let us ask God to bless our time in his word. May the unfolding of your word give us light, O God. Grant us, grant us all that our hearts may hear and understand your holy word so that we may know your will and cherish it and live by it with all diligence and with all faith and with all our hearts. To your praise and honor we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1547, King Edward VI was crowned King of England, right in the middle of the Protestant Reformation and right in the middle of the Reformation in England. Edward was the son of King Henry VIII, the famous or perhaps infamous Henry VIII. 
through his third wife, Jane Seymour. Edward was crowned king at the great old age of nine, the boy king of England. Edward had been put in charge of stewards until he was old enough to begin running the country himself. And his stewards were devout, convinced Protestants. Henry VIII had separated the Church of England from the authority of the Pope in Rome, and so England now had its own church, but Henry decided that he would be the head of the church in England. Of course, the, the, the reason for this was complex, but it boils down to the fact that the Pope would not let Henry divorce his wife. He wanted to marry Anne Boleyn, but he was already married to Catherine of Aragon, queen or, uh, from Spain. And so the Pope wouldn't allow divorce, so he said, fine, I'll start my own church. And they will allow me a divorce, or heads will roll, as Henry was famous for. Edward was, the, was born from Jane Seymour, the next wife Henry had after Anne Boleyn. And at nine years old, he begins his reign as king under these Protestant stewards. And their goal, and Edward's goal, was to bring about full, complete reformation in the Church of England, both in the church and in the state and in the land. All of England was to be a Protestant country, fully reformed according to the Word of God. John Calvin was a big supporter of Edward. He wanted to see the Protestant faith fully implemented in England. But young Edward only reigned for six years. Edward VI died in 1553, and that's how you can remember how long his reign was. Edward VI reigned for six years, and he died. He was sickly for years, and eventually he dies after only six years with the Reformation of England still very much incomplete. Steps were taken, but he needed much, much longer. And after Edward comes his half-sister, Mary. Maybe you've heard of Bloody Mary, not the drink. But it gets its name from her because she was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon. Catherine was Catholic, and Mary was a very committed, ferocious Catholic, and she sought to obliterate the Protestant presence in England and sought to turn back everything Edward did, all the half things that Henry VIII did, to bring about full reformation the other way, all the way back to full-blown Catholicism, to bring England back into the fold with the Catholic Church. And she put hundreds of Protestants to death in the process, which is why she's called Bloody Mary. But thankfully, she only reigned for five short years, from 1553 to 1558. Mary dies, and next in line is Edward's other half-sister, the daughter of Anne Boleyn, the great Protestant queen. And who was that? Elizabeth I. Yes, Elizabeth I, and she reigned until 1603. And she was able to establish England as a Protestant church and a Protestant nation permanently 
from then on. And by the way, as a historical footnote, those who thought that even Elizabeth didn't go far enough in bringing further reformation and purity to the Church of England, they were called Puritans. But that's another story. We have in Edward VI a parallel to what we're going to look at this morning. We have in Edward VI a parallel to an Old Testament reformation, also carried out by a king, a king who took the throne as a child. In our passage this morning, we read of the story of King Josiah of Judah, the brilliant reformer king of ancient Judah. Remember at this time, Israel as one nation under David and Solomon had already split in two couple hundred years before Josiah. It had split ten tribes to the north, and they called themselves Israel. Two tribes to the south, and they called themselves Judah, because the tribe of Judah was the biggest tribe. The other tribe was Benjamin. Judah had the capital, Jerusalem. And so, when you're reading your Old Testament, after the days of Solomon, when it says Israel, you have to double check to see if it means the whole country, or if it means specifically that northern kingdom, those ten tribes. So, a north-south split And here Josiah is the king in Judah. The northern kingdom has already been destroyed and sent away into exile. And here we are in the late 600s B.C. And a young boy, Josiah, takes the throne. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 22. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And then it gives his, his mother's name and her mother's name to establish the, geneal- the genealogical link to legitimate his claim to the throne. He's only eight. Edward was nine. Josiah was just eight years old when he took over as king. But unlike Edward, Josiah ruled 31 years. He had more time than Edward much more time to grow into an adult and to bring about more and more reformation and more and more purity to the people of God. And in 2 Kings 22 through 23, we have the story of how Josiah sought to reform the kingdom. And in this account, we find a blueprint for how God usually in history brings about reformation among his people and in the nations where his people dwells. We say Reformation, and we rightly think 16th century A.D., Protestant Reformation. That's the big one. That's why we're here today in a Presbyterian church, because we're Protestant, because of events that happened in the 16th century. But that's not the only Reformation, certainly not the first, perhaps not even the greatest. We have Reformation happening in the Bible. So what I want us to do is look at an example, in this case an Old Testament example, of a biblical reformation. So we can see how does God usually bring about these sorts of things. And not just so we can say, oh, isn't that interesting, but so that we can learn. So that we can know what we need to do to bring about reformation in our own day. We have just saw the five solos all through October, and now we want to get a bit more practical in terms of the steps that we have to take as individuals, as families, and as a congregation to see Reformation happen here with us in our own homes, in our own lives, in our own families, in our own congregation, and in the churches around us, and on out from there. And so we start with 
this story of Josiah. This morning, I want us to learn from this Old Testament Reformation. I want us to learn how it happened and how we can follow this example and experience a Reformation in our own day. And as we're going to see, Reformation comes about in at least three stages that we find in our text. Number one, rediscovery. Number two, revival. And number three, restoration. So let's begin with the first, rediscovery. First, Reformation begins with the rediscovery of God's Word. The rediscovery of God's Word. In chapter 22, in verses 3 through 7, we are told the historical context. What's happening when this Reformation starts in Judah? And it says in verse 3, In the 18th year of King Josiah... The king sent Shaphan, the son of, Az- of Azaliah, son of some other people I can't pronounce, and he sends them. <laughs> I'm not going to waste your time <laughs> or embarrass myself. Some other important people, they go, and they're told to begin restoring and repairing the temple. The temple repairs are commissioned at this time. The temple itself is degraded. It, is, it needs some maintenance. As every trustee here knows, an old building needs a lot of upkeep. <laughs> and you have to be vigilant to stay on top of how much it costs and what needs to be done and repaired. The temple was built by Solomon like something like 350, 400 years before Josiah. It's an old property, and it needs a lot of attention, a lot of maintenance. And this is what Josiah begins to do. All he's trying to do is just fix up this dilapidated old building, this magnificent temple. He's trying to repair it. That's verses 3 through 7. But in the process, as we read in our reading just a few minutes ago, the book of the law, the book of Torah, the five books of Moses, the first five books of your Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the book of Torah, the book of the law is found in the process. So this is an incredible situation. The temple is falling apart. Josiah pays a lot of people, sends a lot of people to go start doing repairs. And as they're walking around and they've got their clipboards and they're writing down what needs to be done and they're moving stuff and the process is beginning, someone opens an old drawer in some old closet tucked away somewhere in the back of the temple or in the attic or something, open it up, Covered in dust, you can imagine this. They wipe it off, and they're like, oh, remember the Bible? Huh, where's that been for hundreds of years? (laughs) They lost the Bible. (laughs) They didn't have a gazillion copies, like the temple copy, the official one that all the other ones get checked against. And apparently no one bothered to look. They weren't looking for it then. They accidentally found it. So this is an embarrassing situation. They find the book of the law. That's what verse 8 says. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. (laughs) 
Now, notice something here. A reformation was needed in Josiah's day because the Word of God had been neglected, lost, and eventually forgotten for generations. And that's how it starts. Somebody just moved it, like they knew where it was, and somebody just moved it. And then it got pushed to the back of the drawer, and then it just, they forgot about it. No one bothered to pick it up. No one was trying to read it. And eventually it was forgotten about and lost. The neglect of God's word is what led to the desperate situation Judah was in at the time. Josiah's father and grandfather and, on the way, and all the way back, multiple king after king, Second Kings tells us, did evil in the sight of the Lord and rejected God's ways and led Israel into corruption and idolatry. And as a physical parable, a real-life parable of the spiritual condition of the people, the temple itself was falling apart. They didn't know where God's word was, and they didn't know what it said. And the dilapidation, the falling apart, the temple itself had become dilapidated and in disrepair. And that crumbling temple was a parable of the spiritual condition of the people. They were falling apart, their worship was corroding, and the building itself, like a parable from heaven saying, Guys, look at my house, it's falling apart, and you've lost my word. That's you. You are my little temples that are falling apart spiritually, that are corrupt, that are defiled. And the reason is, does any of you care where my word is or what it says? It was lost. Let this be a warning to us. The exact same thing will happen to us individually, families, churches, denominations. You know because we've seen it happen. The same thing will happen to us if we ever neglect and lose and forget God's Word. It's the only thing we have to keep us from just drifting with the world, collapsing with the culture, and just wandering off into every form of silliness and idolatry and heresy. It's what, it's what keeps the dam up that holds back the flood of apostasy. Many people, many churches, many denominations are content, happy to explode those dams and just let it go. They've gotten rid of the Word of God a long time ago. They've forgotten what it is and what it says. But let that not happen to us or we will be in the same condition. Our spiritual condition and the condition of our church and our presbytery, and our denomination, it's not immune from this stuff. You know, some of you, like years ago, we got out of the PCUSA, hooray, and now we're, now we're in a safe place, and we don't have to worry about stuff anymore. The same thing can happen in the EPC. The same thing can happen to anybody. All it takes is a generation to just put the Word of God in the drawer, forget it's there, walk away. It just takes one generation. And the drift can happen 
And you might not notice it at first, just like when you're at the beach and you're standing in the, in the edge of the water and, you know, you're out there 20, 30 minutes and then you turn around and your chair is over there because you've, but you didn't think you moved, but you've drifted down shore. And how many of us could wake up one day and just say, how did we get here? How did we drift? How did we not notice? And then we go, oh, wait, where's the Bible? Oh, <laughs> we've lost sight of the thing that keeps us stable steady, solid, secure. It's God's word. This is what happened in the days of Josiah. They forgot the word of God. And let that not be said of us. Now, what happened when the book of the law was found? What happened? Look at verses 10 through 13 in the text of chapter 22. 10 through 13. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read the whole thing. He read Genesis to Deuteronomy to the king. Okay, that's a long reading. But the king didn't say, okay, shut up, it's enough, enough, close the book, or roll up the scroll, and come back tomorrow. The king sat, and he listened to this reading, which took a long time. He sat stunned and enraptured by what was being said to him. And in verse 11, it says, When the king heard the words of the book of the law, Shaphan gets to the end of the scroll, the end of Deuteronomy, and rolls it up and says, The end. What does Josiah do? He rips his garments to pieces. And if you recall from your Old Testament reading, your Old Testament study, that the rending of a garment in the Old Testament is a sign, a demonstration of deep anguish and repentance. Tear, rending of the garments, tearing the robes was this sign of deep grief that strikes the heart and conscience. Whenever the brothers of Joseph came back to Jacob and said, here's his coat of many colors ripped to shreds and they had dipped it in blood. Of course, Joseph wasn't dead, but they made Jacob think he was. What did Jacob do? He tore his garments. Horror, stricken, tragedy. That's what Josiah did when he heard God's word read to him. The rediscovery of the word of God led Josiah to rip his garments to pieces, broken before God. And verse 12 says, The king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Akbar the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Isaiah the king's servant saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me. And for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us. Why? Because our fathers have not obeyed the, obeyed the words of the book to do, to do according to all that's written in it. We, our fathers, us today, we have not followed God's word. You see, the rediscovery of God's word brought about true, deep repentance. That's the first thing God's, the rediscovery of God's word does for us. So when we get, when we rediscover what it actually says and what it actually teaches and that mirror of the perfect purity of scripture is held up to us and we look at ourselves in it, we see what a disheveled mess we are spiritually. It shows us, Paul says, our sin. 
it leads us to the knowledge, to the consciousness, not only of our sin and how actually horrible it is, but actually how odious and offensive it is to a holy God and what a holy God does to unrepentant sin. Great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us for our disobedience. That's what Josiah saw, his deep disobedience. And he, could, he knew he couldn't say, well, wait a minute. We didn't know we, didn't know we were disobeying. <laughs> we didn't have the book. We lost it. <laughs> no one knew what it said. So I'm off the hook, right? No, because the loss of the Bible was also their own fault. He didn't make excuses. He didn't find loopholes. He didn't try to skirt out of it. He just said, woe is me, for I am undone. Like when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up on his throne in Isaiah 6. Repentance is the very first effect that rediscovering God's word will have on us. God's word tells us the holy will of God. It shows us how severely we have sinned and violated his holy will. And how desperate our situation is under his just wrath. To rediscover God's word is to rediscover what it says to you and about you. It drives us to flee the wrath to come and to fly to the mercy of God, which is what Josiah did next. As we just read, it says, He sent servants to a prophetess, a woman who was a prophet, who delivered a message from God to the king, a prophetess named Huldah, And this is what she said to Josiah as a result of his inquiry and his repentance. He repented and then he sought the Lord. And this was the Lord's response to him through the prophet Huldah in verses 18 through 20 of chapter 22. Huldah says, But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard. Because your heart was penitent, that's repentance, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. When God's word is rediscovered, his truth is recovered, and at the heart of what that word is, At the heart of that word is the promise of forgiveness and peace with God to those who repent and believe. That's what Josiah heard. Because you repented and tore your clothes and wept and turned to me, I've heard you, and you will not undergo the wrath to come. You will not experience the curse and the desolation that's coming upon those who have not responded the way you did. And I want you to hear in the Old Testament the gospel The gospel in this story. He heard God's word. He understood the wrath to come and his own disobedience. He repented. He wept. He tore his garments. He fled. He fled to the Lord. And he inquired of the Lord. He cried out to the Lord. And the Lord's word came back and said, Because you've repented, you're not going to undergo my wrath. You're spared. That's the gospel, folks. When you fly to Jesus, 
He rescues you from the wrath to come. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come, who spares us, who rescues us, who saves us from our sin and the consequences of our sin. And here Josiah gets a little glimpse of what the gospel is. Repentance and faith leads to and brings about God's salvation in our lives. And that's what happens when God's word is rediscovered. At the heart of the Reformation is the rediscovery of God's word. And at the heart of God's word is the gospel. And this brings us to stage two of, a, of Reformation, biblical Reformation. And that is the revival of obedience to God's word. The revival of obedience to God's word. Look at chapter 23, verses 1 through 3. Hold had just finished delivering the, the word of the Lord to the king. And then it says in verse 1, Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests, and the prophets, all the people, both small and great, And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. When God's word is rediscovered, that is what happens. You get a revival of obedience to the word of God. Sometimes we talk about revival and we think it's a spiritual experience. It's an emotion we have in a tent meeting where we run forward and have a a good cry and go home floating on air. That revival has to be emotional. It has to be this uplifting kind of thing, great awakening type stuff. Now, God certainly can bring about revival in that way. That can happen, but that's not the main thing that revival's about. Revival is about someone who gets up off his knees having torn his garments and repented and heard the assurance of the gospel, and then he gets up and he says, and now I'm going to walk in all the ways of this book because failure to do that is what got me under the wrath of God to start with. And now you walk in the fear of the Lord, which means I don't want to be back under his wrath because that sounds terrifying. That doesn't sound safe or good or productive. So who wants to be under the wrath of God? So you walk in the fear of the Lord, which means I'm going to walk in obedience because I don't want to trifle with that. He delivered me from it, not so I could go back into it. He didn't save me and set me free from sin's penalty and consequences so I can just keep wallowing in sin's corruption. No, once you've been rescued out of sin, it's time to then start living a new life. And when you rediscover God's word and the gospel at the heart of that word, it changes you. You repent and believe, you become a new creature, and now you go the other direction and you walk in a new obedience. There's a revival of obedience in your heart, mind, and life. Not just an elated feeling you have that leads you to go forward in a, in a tent meeting or a revival meeting. Again, going forward and that kind of stuff can have its place and God can use anything. 
But if all you get is the experience down here praying a prayer and you go home unchanged, you didn't get revived. You just got stirred up. Revival of obedience is the next thing that happens. It is stage two of reformation. Not only did Josiah seek his own repentance when he discovered God's word and received those promises of the gospel, he then ordained that the word of God be delivered to his people. That's verse 2. See, the book was brought to Josiah and read to him, and then he turned around and he read it to all the people. The whole thing was read to the people in verse 2. And he read in their hearing all the word, all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And that is so essential for revival. If we want revival to happen, it can't just be the king or the leader or someone who hears the word and repents, but then doesn't tell anybody. No, you've got to get the word out to the masses, to the people. You've got to get God's word in people's homes, in people's lives, in people's hearts, in the pews. You've got to get it out to them. And so always with revivals, always with revivals, there is an amazing resurgence of great, powerful preaching. This is how God loves to bring about revival. In this age of Josiah, this was the age of great preachers in Judah. Not only Huldah the prophetess, the woman who was proclaiming God's word in chapter 22, but also at this time, not named in our text, but found elsewhere in Scripture, are Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah the prophet and the person that we got our Old Testament reading from this morning, Zephaniah. If Go read Jeremiah and Zephaniah. And listen to how they were preaching to the people and doing this, applying the whole counsel of God to God's people. You can read their sermons to the people at this time. This was a time of fantastic preaching of God's word. There is something special about the proclamation of God's word. And it's got nothing to do with how special the preacher is, God forbid. It's got nothing to do with the person up there who's speaking it or delivering it. It's that sometimes God, desire, God just designs and desires and ordains to raise up people who are just weak, needy sinners like you and me and everybody else. They're just small, broken vessels that he decides to lift up and just pour something powerful into them and just use them in a mighty way. They're just weak, frail men and women of a great and powerful God. And God is pleased to just do something through them. God is pleased to just use the foolishness of preaching, Paul says. God is pleased to use the foolishness of preaching. It's foolish to the world. And yet through it, God has ordained to save his people by getting his word out, the whole counsel of God to all the people of God. God raises up great preachers who proclaim that rediscovered word to the people. And then the Holy Spirit makes that word come alive in our hearts. And that's where revival begins. Revival, both in Josiah's day and in the Protestant Reformation, it always begins, when you get to this stage, revival begins with the resurgence of biblical preaching and teaching. And then it leads to an iron resolve to conform all of life to that word that is preached. 
That's what verse 3 tells us in, in chapter 23. The king made his covenant to keep God's commandments and testimonies with all his heart and with all his soul and to perform the words that were written and the people joined in. That is spiritual commitment. That is a resolve to walk in obedience. They resolved to believe all that Scripture teaches, to trust all that Scripture promises, and to do all that Scripture commands. That's when you know revival's taking place. Not hoping and hollering, but when people go home and live different lives, changed, visibly, noticeably at work, noticeably with your family, what has happened to you? you this, is not, this is not the person who, went to, who, who I was talking to last week. You are a new person. Revival, it involves this kind of change. You see, revival is essential to reformation. But we must never simply pray for revival. We must also labor with diligence for reformation. Don't just get on our knees and say, Lord, we need revival in our country, and Lord, we need revival in our church, and Lord, revive, revive, revive. And just, and just stop at the prayer level and then never actually do any of this obedience stuff. We're just praying for it, but we're not laboring for it. But the two always have to go together. It does no good to just get busy and active and we're going to reform this thing and forget to pray. <laughs> As if it's up to us and God's just going to hope we get it done and clap when we're finished. Or just be disappointed when we don't do it right. That's reformation without prayer. That's just the flesh with good intentions. But then we also don't want to just pray and pray and pray and then never change and never act and never do and never plan and never go and never... Right? That's the, that's, that's, we're trying to do it the cheap way. We're just trying to pray for it, and God will do it, and we'll just stand back and watch. He doesn't need us. Well, yeah, he doesn't need you, but he wants us engaged. He wants us engaged. He wants the two to go together. We have to cut and gather and pile up the wood and douse it with the gasoline of God's word, and then we look to the heavens for the fire to fall. But we want something to be there that can burn when the fire falls. As I like to say, give the Holy Spirit something to work with, please. And that's our obedience. It's like God telling Noah, I'm going to save you from the flood. And Noah saying, great, and then laying in his hammock and never building the boat. Well, Noah would have drowned. Right? If you just try to build the boat without God's word... Pointless, it's just a boat. <laughs> but if you try to just trust God's word, but you never get busy chopping, sawing, constructing, doesn't do any good. Put the two together, laboring for reformation and crying out to God for revival. Josiah did both. He cried out to God and he got busy with obedience. And that's when the fire fell. And this brings us to our final stage of reformation. The rediscovery of God's word leads to revival, which consists of a resurgence of biblical preaching and resolve for new obedience. And then 
Revival in stage two leads to stage three, which is restoration. And restoration has two parts. First, corruption is removed. And second, true worship is reinstituted according to Scripture. Josiah begins the removal of corruption immediately after the part we just read, after he makes this covenant with the people. The removal of corruption begins immediately in verses 4 through 20. Josiah starts with the temple itself and then moves out to the larger area of his kingdom after that. But he starts with the temple, starts with Jerusalem, and then he moves outward. This is instructive. He starts with the temple and he removes all of its idols, verses 4 through 20. The very first form of corruption that must be targeted and eliminated is idolatry, the corruption of true worship biblical worship. We just talked about this last week, that the, re- the reformation of worship is the most essential thing. That's not just something Calvin made up and that we're, we agree with because we're Presbyterian or we're Reformed or whatever. Who cares about Calvin? We see it in the text. That's the first thing Josiah does. Lord, we are going to do everything you say. Now get these idols out of the temple. That's where it starts. Get this corruption out of here. Get these wicked priests away from God's holy altar. How dare they touch his altar with these defiled hands and this corruption and this false teaching. That's step one. Get the idols out of God's temple. Look at verse four. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal a false god, for Asherah, a false god, and for all the hosts of heaven. They were worshiping planets and star gods. They just they had an altar and an idol for just tons of other gods in God's temple. And the first thing he did was to get all those things out. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. He didn't even want their ashes near the temple. He abolished idolatry. That's where the restoration starts. Reformation, you rediscover God's word. It brings about revival, and then you get busy abolishing idolatry. You're restoring God's people and God's worship back to its original purity, according to what that word says. The idols have to go. Next, Josiah removed the corrupt priests who were leading the people astray into idolatry and false teaching. That's verse 5. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of heaven. Verse 6 says, he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem. Verse 7, he broke down the houses of these male cult prostitutes who were in the... I mean, it was bad. It wasn't just, oh, don't offer incense that way. <laughs> this is wicked idolatry that's taking place. Male cult prostitutes in the house of the Lord, and it goes on from there, and it gets worse. We're not going to take time to read the whole thing. It is highly, highly corrupt 
restoration needs to happen. The idols had to go. The corrupt priests had to go. These corrupt people had to go. Cleansing the temple. Cleansing the temple is essential for a true reformation. False worship and false teaching and wicked leadership must be purged from the church. That's the first step of this restoration. Corrupt leaders and corrupt practices must go when reformation happens. And this is exactly what happened in the Protestant Reformation. That's why a separation had to take place. Reformation demands separation. Separate what God commands from what God forbids. Separate from what God despises. And what did Josiah put in place of the corruption? He instituted true worship according to Scripture. Verses 21 to 23. And the king commanded all the people, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges. (laughs) Hundreds of years who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. The restoration of true worship, specifically in this case, the Passover. And the parallel to that in the Reformation of the Protestants is the sacraments. Putting the the practice of the sacraments and the worship of God back in its place according to Scripture. Get rid of the corruption. Get rid of the false worship. Get rid of the false teachers and leaders. Put the right people in place and put right worship back at center stage. That's how a biblical reformation comes about. These are the three stages of reformation. And this is the great summary of Josiah's reformation that we get in verses 24 to 25, and we'll finish here. It says, Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. What a legacy that Josiah left. What a rich legacy as this great reforming king. Brothers and sisters, let this be the description that God would write over your life and over this church. Let this be our legacy. We have hundreds of years of a legacy already. And God willing, we'll keep going into the future. Let this be at the end, at the great judgment, they will look at us, at us here in these pews, and us in this church, and us here in this congregation, and they will be able to say, nobody turned to the Lord like you to do all that was written in my word. You were absolutely committed to making sure God's word was established in your hearts and lives and in your church, that you were committed to walking in all obedience, repenting and believing and obeying. And there was no one in this church like you before or after. That would be a great legacy to leave for people to look back at this generation of this church and say, look at that.
Just like we look back to Luther and Calvin, people can look back to us because they weren't that special. (laughs) They were broken sinners like you and me. But we have a chance to see reformation happen. Let this be the description that God would write over your life and over our church. Let us rediscover God's word and make sure the next generation doesn't have to rediscover it, that they know it because we don't neglect it. Let's rediscover God's word. Let's resolve to walk in all of his holy will and be zealous for his true worship. And may God be pleased in his mercy to send down the fire to ignite a revival in our lives, in our families, in our church. And may we see a true biblical reformation in this generation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of Josiah and for this Old Testament reformation. I pray that you would take this truth and these stages of reformation and that you would Even now, start that process. Ignite it in us. May we not lose your word. May we repent and believe your gospel. Repent of our sins and believe your gospel. And may we commit ourselves with resolve to walk in all of your holy will. Revive us, we pray. Revive our love for your word and our zeal to believe it and obey it and our eagerness and joy to come into your presence for worship, to make sure your truth is proclaimed, to be your faithful people, both in what we believe and in how we live and in how we follow you in this church. And we'll give you the glory as we see you send down your spirit and your holy fire to ignite something that we can never take credit for, but that we get the joy of participating in what you and you alone are doing. Do this for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.